Good morning, everybody. Started off to be a good day, huh? Amen. Amen. Yeah, we're so grateful, so thankful for all of you. And uh, special days like today, uh, there's always reasons to be grateful and thankful to God. And uh, there's certain times and certain seasons where he just makes it more clear uh, for us. But uh, it's been an amazing week, not just this morning so far. On, uh, on Tuesday, we had our men's meeting. The men gathered on Tuesday night. We went out to, uh, amen, we went out to Stonefire Grill and uh, most of us ate a bunch of meat and acted like men and growled at each other and talked about Jesus, but it was a great time of, of fellowship. Uh, on Wednesday night, our life groups got back together, amen? So like we said, we're gonna be doing that once a month for the next three months and uh, Already people have been reaching out saying, can we get started now? Do we have to wait until next month? And uh, people are excited. We are excited to see what God uh, just began to do and rekindled in us when it comes to that area. And then we fast forward to Friday night. We had our youth here. We had our young adults here, uh, uh, the young adults uh, growing in their group. Our youth had one of our men that was with us on Tuesday night minister to them and uh, share about the very thing that we're going to be doing as a church today, which is outreaching, going out and sharing the good news. It's one thing to come together and get excited and pray over what God has done in the areas of cancer and lifting people up. It's another thing to do to leave the church and take that same passion, that same desire for what we're able to see and receive and try to share that with others. So he shared that with our youth on Friday night. Uh, my son came home and told me all about it. Uh, it, was, uh, it was good to hear what God has been doing. Um, some might say, though, that, that we're a little bit crazy. That's a long week between men and then life groups and then our youth and young adults. Today we're going outreaching, but we just believe that, uh, that God is good and that God is on the move. One last thing I want to acknowledge, and then we'll, we'll get into the, the message this morning, is that uh, two of our young people, two of our youth that came through our youth into our young adults group now are, are part of our worship team. Uh, RJ and Yvette got engaged this week, so we want to give them a hand. Amen. So for you parents, you know, youth, <laughs> there she is. <laughs> She's like, I heard that. I saw her singing all morning. She just kept using this left hand singing everywhere. But uh, yeah, there, there's something about what God can do in people's lives and faithfully serving the Lord and trusting in the Lord. And, and we're excited for them as they enter into premarital counseling and as they prepare themselves for, for what God has for them in the future. So just keep them lifted up as well. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, so we're in a series. Uh, we started this series two weeks ago. We're in the book of Philippians, and we're going to continue with that uh, this morning to briefly kind of catch you up for those that, that haven't been able to be here with us or watch or listen. In the first week, what we looked at is how the church in Philippi was planted. We looked at uh, Philippi being a, a Roman colony, how it was a major port city, right? So ships would be coming in. It had the main thoroughfare, thoroughfare, the main road to get from the east to the west, going straight through Philippi. So there's a lot of culture. There's a lot of money. There's a lot of different um, uh, people who are involved in, in living in this city and working in this city. Very, very important city. Um, that was colonized just 40 years before, um, before Jesus is born. So Paul planted this church about 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
and about at least 17 years after he got saved. Many of you know the story of Paul. He's, he's persecuting the church, persecuting Christians. He gets blinded and knocked off of his horse. The Lord speaks to him. What are you doing, Paul? You're supposed to be serving me. 17 years, he faithfully serves the Lord, ministers locally, and then the Lord says, all right, now it's time for you to go out and evangelize. Go on these mission trips to let the world know and let the Gentiles know, not just the Jews, who I am, right? So it's, it's, it's not something that happened right away. It's something that God had been uh, working on with this man and with the church as a whole. Um, and he goes out. In that first week, we looked at the pieces that were a part of this church plant in Philippi, and we believe should really be a part of every church plant. Any church you've been a part of, any church you eventually may be a part of, this church, I think uh, we can see the importance of all these different areas. We looked at it being a, a spirit-led entry into the city. Paul got a dream. He wasn't planning to go to Philippi, but Paul got a dream and he said, okay, now we're going there. The spirit is leading us to this place. We looked at sound doctrine. When, when they got there, they weren't just saying, hey, we should love Jesus. They were explaining to people, what does it mean to love Jesus? What is the gospel? Why did he have to come to earth? Why was he crucified? What does the resurrection mean? Like, doctrine is important. We can't just go on feeling. I don't know about the rest of you, but we get into worship and I get these feelings. And many of us might feel like, man, I just want to feel that way all the time. We don't really need the Bible. We don't really need teaching. <laughs> No, the doctrine is important. When we understand the God that we serve, we can actually worship him more fully. Somebody say amen. 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 We also saw that there were praying women. The church got planted because Paul shows up in this city. He goes down to the river. He's looking for the prayer meeting. There's nothing but women there. We talked about how a lot of churches start that way, right? The men will come out in droves for Stonefire Grill tri-tip. <laughs> we got a prayer meeting. It's all ladies in here fasting. But it's okay. We can acknowledge that and we can, we can embrace that, but we can also challenge the men to say we should be leading in prayer, right? If we want to be the head of our household, we need to be the head of the prayer meetings as well. Uh, we saw salvations and baptisms in, in this church plant, all right? So Lydia and her friends and her family get, get saved. They begin to understand who Jesus is. They get baptized. We see a Philippian jailer get saved. His family gets baptized. It's this all walks of life. If you look around the church right now, you see all walks of life, all different types of people who are getting saved and coming to faith in Jesus. We also saw the casting out of demons, right? Paul is there to minister, and there's a, a woman who's uh, demonically uh, oppressed, and she's shouting out the whole time that they're trying to minister. These men are from God. They're sent from God. They're going to show us the way of salvation. And Paul cast this demon out of this young woman. And we, and we recognize that the battle that we're in, the Bible says, is not against flesh and blood. It's about spiritual, uh, it's a spiritual battle in the heavenly places. If you don't believe in demons, then how do you believe in angels? If you don't believe in, in, uh, in the devil, how do you believe in God? How do, you, uh, how do you work out that part of your faith, you know? We need to be understanding that these things are real. And when it comes to the church, people aren't just coming in broken. They're coming in oppressed and depressed and possessed. So we saw that in this church. And the last two things we saw in week one were worship and joy. Paul was uh, 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 arrested, and he finds himself worshiping within the prison, and that's where break, uh, breakthrough came, shackles came off, other prisoners were set free, and God moved. There's something about worship. You know, as you look around and you see the survivors who were here this morning, uh, they're not just saying we survived and they're huddled up somewhere. You come and you enter into worship. You thank God for what he's done, even in your difficult times. And that's where joy comes from. Joy is not happiness. We learned that, right? Happiness is I feel good today. Joy is it doesn't matter how I feel today. I know Jesus and I can have joy. All right. So in week two, we shifted and we actually got into the book of Philippians. And we saw that Paul writes this letter 
to the church in Philippi 10 years later. So 17 to 20 years after the resurrection of Christ, Paul's preparing. He goes into the city. He plants the church. 10 years later, he writes this. So we're talking about a 30-year span of time. Those of you that want God to do everything right now, be patient. <laughs> it ain't going to happen right now all the time. God takes his time, but he does exactly what he wants to do. So 30 years later, Paul's writing this letter, 10 years after the church has been planted. We know that Paul has been in communication. We know that Paul uh, has sent other letters back and forth, and he's probably visited uh, Philippi many times. But he addresses the letter in the beginning of Philippians 1. He says, to the bishops, to the deacons, and to the saints that are there in Philippi. So we might say to the pastors, to the leaders, and to all the believers who are there. This church has grown from a few ladies down by the river and a few uh, uh, Roman citizens that got saved into multiple locations, multiple pastors and leaders. It's a thriving uh, church in the city of Philippi. And the three things we looked at last week were discipleship. We really saw that as, as Paul talked about his relationship with Timothy and how he opens this letter. We learned a lot about discipleship. Hopefully people have been asking questions and encouraged by that. We looked at unity and continuity. We said the difference is unity. You can't have continuity without unity. Unity means we are all here together, same building, same place, united for the same reason, Jesus Christ. But continuity means that we are actually moving together in a similar direction, that we need each other, right? We could all be in the same room, but if somebody else fire right now, some of you are hitting this door, some are hitting that door, some are like pushing the pastor over and getting out the front door, right? That's, we were united, but we all had different plans and different directions we wanted to go. Continuity means that we are all going in the same direction, and that we're dependent upon each other, right? That we all huddle up in the, in, into the middle of the room and we say, look, the fire is too big there and there. We've got a fire extinguisher here. That's our only way out. We can all get out together if we go that way. That's continuity, moving together, that everybody would make it. And the last thing we saw was love, knowledge, and discernment. Paul writes this letter and he says, I'm not just writing to say, hey, how are you guys doing? I'm telling you, you need to increase in love. You need to increase in your knowledge, that, that doctrine we talked about, understanding who Jesus is, and discernment. Make your decisions based on the love you have for Jesus, the things that he has taught us, and then you have discernment on what to do and what not to do, where to go, where not to go, who to listen to and who not to listen to. And that was only the first 11 verses. So good Lord, we're only going to cover... Looks like uh, about 14, 15 verses this morning, but I think it's going to be good. If you've got your Bibles, Philippians chapter 1, when you get there, say amen. 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 <clears throat> so we're going to start at verse 12, and the scripture says, this is Paul again speaking to the, to the Philippians, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has been, become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed 
but with all boldness as always, so now also in Christ, or excuse me, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. For I'm hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that we live in the, the era and in the age and in the season where we have your word, Lord. The manifest wisdom, Lord, that you've poured out has been given freely to us, Lord. Help us to understand it. Help us to wrestle with it, Lord God. Help it to be more than words, Lord, but words that jump off of the page and into our hearts and into our minds that change the way that we see ourselves, the way that we see the world, the way that we see you and the way that we behave and act, Lord God. We ask that you would open our hearts this morning, open our minds, whatever might be distracting us, Lord, or discouraging us this morning, Lord, that we would lay those things to the side. You told us to come to you if we're burdened, Lord God, and to lay these things at your feet, Lord. We desire to do that this morning, Lord. Would you help us? Would you encourage us? Would you challenge us and would you strengthen us, Lord? We need you and we love you. We came to see you this morning. We came to be with you this morning. So have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 All right. So the first portion I want to look at is verse 12 and 13. Paul says, I want you to know, he's writing to this church. They've been there for 10 years, right? 30 years after the uh, death and resurrection of Jesus. says, this is what I want you to know. My brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to all the palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. So number one this morning is salvation and suffering. Say salvation. salvation. Say suffering. suffering. Amen. So we talked about how this letter gets written, how long it's been. And when Paul first planted this church, uh, we said that when he went to meet with Lydia, he got arrested. That's how the church plant starts, is he goes and tells people about Jesus, baptizes them, and then the next day he gets arrested. It's been 10 years, and now he's writing to them again from prison. Paul has some issues. The believers in Philippi may be beginning to think, what's going on with our apostle? <laughs> this guy is telling us about Jesus, and he's sent from God, and he's got all this wisdom. But every time we talk to him, the dude's either getting arrested or getting beaten, getting uh, 39 lashes. Like, his life is terrible. I don't know if we want to follow him. He seems like he might actually be cursed. Maybe we should go in another direction. Paul does not deny the struggle, though, right? He says, look, the struggle is real. But instead of focusing on the struggle, what does he do? He says, I want to shift your attention and say that my struggle, my suffering has turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. You know how when we talk to one another, we always want to talk about the struggle. We always want to talk about what we're going through. Like, we can't wait to get to that first part of the conversation. Hey, bro, how you doing? I'm good, man. How are you doing? I'm good. Hey, sis, how are you doing? Oh, I'm so good. I'm blessed with heaven's best. How about you? I'm so great too, sis. But let me tell you what happened. We can't wait to get to the struggle. We need somebody to come into our pain and come into our struggle. Paul, instead of talking about the fact that he's in a prison again, he says, listen, the things that are happening to me have turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. 
At this time in the world, and throughout most of the history of the world, suffering is usually connected with punishment, right? If you're suffering, you're being punished. You must have done something wrong. All the gods of the ancient world were called upon to give people um, help or a way out of suffering. You never prayed that you would suffer. You prayed that you would get help for your suffering. People were considered cursed if their lives looked like the way that Paul's life looked, right? Sometimes people would even sacrifice their own children or the children of others to get the favor of a God that would bless them. Whatever area you're struggling or suffering in your life, you pray to that God and you make these sacrifices, hoping to come out of this suffering to appease that God. And look what the gospel does. It turns that whole system of belief upside down. And instead, we get the story. The gospel is the story of the God who himself suffers. The God who suffers and dies on our behalf. The world's never heard anything like that before. It's normal to us, but remember, when this is written and these people are receiving it, it's, it's, it's unbelievably foreign to them that you could suffer and be blessed and that there is a God that would suffer and that there is a God that would die. It's changing the world. Is the furtherance of the gospel at the forefront of our minds when we're suffering? Paul says, the things that have happened to me have turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. When you're suffering, when I'm suffering, when you're going through something, is the furtherance of the gospel at the forefront of your mind? Are you thinking, yes, I'm suffering, but how can the gospel progress through my suffering? We didn't plan it this way, but I don't think we could have had a better day than Survivor Sunday to be talking about this. Maybe we should call it Sufferer Sunday. See, we love to celebrate like almost, you know, not that it's ever over, over, but when it's over and you've survived and you've made it, let's celebrate. But what about all that suffering that took place in the process that only you know about, only your family knows about? See, there's grace for all of us uh, when we're suffering and we don't suffer well. When we're bitter and we're angry and we're in pain and we don't want to be nice and we don't want to think about God, God has grace for us. He understands that we are not perfect. However, what I believe call it, uh, excuse me, Paul is doing here is he's calling us to suffer well and to suffer with a purpose. Not just to wait till you're done suffering and glorify God, but to actually suffer well and to suffer with a purpose. Paul says, come higher up, right? Like, get away from the place where you can touch your suffering. God is calling you to come higher up and look down on your suffering, right? See, when you're in the middle of it, and all of us, if you've been in the middle of it, somebody say amen. amen. Okay, so I know we're all here. <laughs> so look, when you're in the middle of it, and like you can reach out and touch your suffering and your bitterness and your anger and your pain, it's tough. But if God, like Paul is saying here, if God calls you up above and he says, I want you to look down on this from heaven and in the arms of Jesus, holding on to Jesus and saying, let's look at my suffering. And then Jesus would say to you and Jesus would say to me, look, I see your suffering, but will you suffer well for all those people around you who don't know me yet and they're watching you? Man, suffering sucks. Pain, betrayal, 
sickness. You know, we look at the adults who are survivors here, and then we look at a young man like Jude who's going through something like this right now. Like, it's real, and it hurts, and it's painful. And there's really no way out of it unless you come higher up. Unless you get into the arms of Jesus and look down of it, there's no hope. Listen to what Paul says in uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. He says, I now rejoice in my suffering for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. It's crazy talk. I rejoice in my suffering and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Paul is not saying that Jesus was not afflicted enough or fully on the cross. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that if the church is the body of Christ, the church should expect to suffer affliction just like Jesus suffered affliction. Pain and suffering were part of what it meant to be Christ and what it still means to be Christ, which means pain and suffering is going to be part of what it means to be a Christian. And Paul says, I'm filling that up. See, he lived 33 years, he died, he rose, he went back to heaven, and now his body is still living in us, and there's more suffering to be done. And it's not just the sake of suffering for the sake of suffering, it's suffering for the sake of salvation. People are not going to usually make their decision about your faith when things are good for you. Everybody's always watching us, somebody say amen. But they're not watching you when life is great, like you just got engaged and you're on the worship team. <laughs> Nobody cares about your faith right now, bro. They're not watching you then when life is good. They're watching you when you're suffering. And that's when they're going to make their decision about your faith. Is it real? Is it not real? Is it bigger than this world or is it not bigger than this world? Can it overcome pain or can it not overcome pain? They're watching us when we're suffering and they're going to make their decision about your faith, whether they're going to follow you, whether they're going to take that invitation to church, whether they're going to actually ask you questions about what it really means to be a Christian based on how you and I suffer. When you're sick, when you've lost a loved one, when your church leaders have hurt you, when you've been slandered and humiliated, when you're broke and when you're lonely, how you suffer in those times, that's when people are watching you and saying, let's see if it's real or not. And Paul is saying, man, come higher up and deeper in with the things of God and suffer well. And then he says, look at the fruit of this. Verse 13 this morning, Philippians, he says, it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. <laughs> he says, look, I am bound to Jesus. I have come up higher up and deeper in i'm in the arms of jesus and i am suffering well and everybody knows it the whole palace guard is looking at me like how is this dude living like this how is he being treated like this but he's asking for paper so he can write to churches all over the place talking about the furtherance of the gospel in the beginning of this church plant 10 years ago paul gets arrested but people are getting saved. Ten years later, Paul's in jail. People are getting saved. He suffers well. And he suffers for the sake of salvation. Powerful. Let's keep going. Verse 14. 
says, and most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. So number two this morning is inside or in spite? Inside or in spite? One thing that we know is that God is going to move and God is going to accomplish exactly what God desires to accomplish. There's no stopping him. Somebody say amen. amen. The question is whether he's going to move and accomplish his will inside of us or whether he's going to move and accomplish his will in spite of us. He's going to do it, and the choice is up to us. He can either do that from within us, alive and well, and being surrendered to and using us, or he can do that in spite of us. What God wants to do, he's going to do regardless. Paul says that his suffering well has caused all kinds of people to consider Jesus. Some have put their faith in Jesus. And many are now preaching boldly. He's, he's writing to the church in Philippi. Yeah, I've been through a lot. The struggle is real. But you should see how many people are preaching. You should see how many people are bold about their faith now because of what I've gone through. But then he makes this distinction between those who are preaching from goodwill and those who are preaching from envy and strife. I don't know if this is going to be a newsflash to you, but there have always been charlatans in the church. And there always will be charlatans in the church. Shady people. Shady leaders, shady pastors. There's never been a season where there weren't ungodly men and women in the church and leading. And there will never be. We should not be shocked when it happens. We should be angry. We should be frustrated, but we should not be shocked. It should not be a surprise to us when we find out that there are pastors and leaders who are stealing from the church. When we find out that leaders and ministry leaders and pastors are caught in adultery. When we look at all different types of abuse that have happened within the church. We should be angry, but we should not be shocked because that's just human nature. The church is full of regular people. Paul's saying here, look, there are some who are preaching out of goodwill and some out of envy. Paul says some preach for selfish ambition. They make it about themselves about what they know, about what they think should be taught, about how they can minister and how they're seen by others. Then he says, others preach with love and sincerity and they make it all about Jesus and how he's seen by the world. I like also in verse 16 where he says, the former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. You know what that means? adding affliction to my chains. He's saying there are people out there that are preaching for the wrong reasons and they know it and they're doing it on purpose because they look at me and they say, look, he's in jail. He knows that he's the real deal and I'm not, but he's in jail and I get to be out here. He says, that's going to add affliction to my chains. It's already bad enough that I'm arrested and it makes it worse that I know I should be out there. How is this possible, Lord, that those shady ones are out there and I'm stuck in this prison? How many of you don't raise your hand and don't say amen? Have ever felt that way though like man i'm the real deal in this relationship or in this company or in this friendship and the shady ones are getting all the blessings 
affliction to my chains. That's what Paul's saying. But look at this. Paul says, I don't care if Christ is preached by pretenders or if Christ is preached by true believers. I only care that Christ is preached. He's not more concerned with himself and adding affliction to his chains. He's more concerned with the name of Jesus is being proclaimed. How can he say that? How can somebody like Paul feel that way? It's the church. There's no room for shadiness. There's no room for people who aren't 100% all about it, fully surrendered to God. Paul understands that when people hear about Jesus, their lives can be transformed, and it's not contingent upon the person they hear about Jesus from. It's contingent about Jesus deciding to transform their lives. Does that make sense? It doesn't matter who you are or where you are. When you hear about Jesus, your life can be completely changed and transformed. And it doesn't matter who you hear from. Once you hear, Jesus has this opening if you allow him to come in and change and transform your life. So it doesn't matter if a shady person told you or an awesome person told you. As long as somebody told you, your eyes are open, your ears are open to the truth. And God can begin to move in your life. And Paul understands that. That's a tough pill to swallow, though. We begin to ask questions when we see those churches shut down. We see those pastors um, uh, uh, have to be removed. We see things like the Catholic Church and the molestation of children. We begin to ask ourselves, well, how then is it possible that so many people got saved in that ministry? How is it possible that, that so many people were changed and transformed and planted churches out of that ministry? Because it's not contingent upon that person. It's contingent upon who Jesus is. In Mark 9, 38, it says that John answered Jesus saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbid him or forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. Woo! See, a lot of things that we think, we wouldn't think if we read the Bible. I would not think that Jesus would say something like this. Jesus is saying, that person is not real, doesn't really know me, and is not really serving me. However, what they're saying is true. So if they're not against us, they're for us. And he's also saying that when they see my spirit move upon these people and provide healing and provide salvation and forgiveness, they can't hate on me. They know it's not them, they know it's me. And at some point, they're going to have to make a decision for themselves. Do I want to be a charlatan or do I want to be a true believer? None of us would be able to live like that, knowing that there's shady people in our camp, knowing that there's shady members in our family, knowing that there's shady people in our church. Jesus let Judas be one of the 12 disciples and he washed his feet. I'm gonna get myself in trouble. So what's the point? God is going to move. He's either going to do that inside of us or in spite of us. And Paul is celebrating that. He's saying, I just love the fact that God is being preached. My focus as a, as a pastor is to be in relationships and communities personally that help to ensure that my heart is in the right place and help to ensure that my relationship with God is deepening. 
I can't just leave that to chance. I have to put myself in relationships, friendships, communities, discipleship type relationships, where I make sure that my heart is accountable, that my life is accountable, and that I keep growing with God. Otherwise, I can end up becoming an in spite of instead of an inside of. When we look at ministry leaders within our church, we don't just say, oh, thank God you want to serve. Thank you for your service. No, we say, thank God you want to serve. Thank you for your service. But we are going to be extremely focused on your growth personally, making sure that you're fully surrendered to God and making sure that you continue to grow in your relationship with God. Why? Because we don't want you to be an in spite of. We want you to be an inside of. Matthew 7, 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus is saying, yeah, you did all that stuff. But it was actually me doing it in spite of you, not inside of you, because I never knew you. You never knew me. We did not have a real relationship. You were tapping into my power for your glory and not my glory. It's heavy, huh? <laughs> yeah, Paul writes this letter to the Philippians. Like, he means business. He's not playing around. <laughs> Let's keep going. Verse 19, <clears throat> so we had salvation and suffering, we have inside of and in spite of, and then let's look at verse 19. Paul says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So the first thing here is that Paul's going back to unity and continuity like we talked about through prayer. Paul says, I know I'm going to be delivered. Why? Because of your prayer and the supply of the Holy Spirit. I thought about it. You know, we pray all the time. We call people to pray all the time. I think it's uh, next Friday, not this coming weekend, but the following one. We have praying in the Spirit here in the church. Uh, we called the, the folks up this morning. We prayed over you. We prayed at a distance for Jude. And even as we're praying, I'm thinking to myself, like, man, we have to actually really press into this prayer. This is not just words. This is not just this idea of like, oh, yeah, we're supposed to pray as Christian. Our Father who art in heaven, bless us, please. <laughs> Paul is saying, I'm in prison. All kinds of crazy stuff is, is happening to me, but I am confident that I'm going to be delivered. Why? Because of your prayers. He's expecting the church in Philippi not just to be worried about Philippi. He's expecting the people who are going through their own suffering not just to be worried about their suffering. He's saying, my expectation is that you are going to be praying for me and your prayers are going to accomplish something. How many of us feel like our prayers are going to accomplish something? How many of us are depending on the prayers of others? Like when you go through the scriptures, church, just please remember this. You, if your eyes are open to it, you'll see it all the time that prayer does matter. Prayer does work. Prayer and worship is what happened when they were actually released from the shackles in the prison. We need your, I need your prayers. You know, I think in the beginning of, of my salvation and, and leading the church, uh, people would tell me, oh, we're praying for you, pastor. And, and I'd be like, oh, that's cool. But I need help. <laughs> 
And now the place that I'm at, when somebody tells me that and I know they're telling the truth, I thank God because I'm like, Lord, without those prayers, there's no hope for me. There's no chance for this church. There is not enough strength or ability in any man, any family, to do what God is calling us to do, if not for the prayers of your people. There's been times for me, I'm sure like many of you, where, where you, tell, you tell somebody, oh, I'm going to pray for you, and then you don't pray. That's bad. <laughs> I got to a place where like, what I typically do now is if somebody tells me something's going on, I say, oh, I'm going to pray for you, and then I'll stop right there and pray for them because I don't want to not pray for them. But even there's a step further, I believe, where like the situation with, with Jude, where it's like, I haven't stopped praying for him. Because I, I'm not just thinking about the fact that this is family to me. I'm thinking about the fact of like, man, what must Tom and April be going through? What must this seven-year-old boy be going through? I have to pray for him. I have to believe. I want to see you do something, God. And this is what Paul is telling us. He's saying, look, I'm going to be set free and it's going to be because you guys are praying for me. That's a, that's a big burden to put on them. <laughs> this church is going to continue to grow. People are going to continue to get saved because you guys are going to pray. That's a big burden. Deal with it. <laughs> All right, but number three, the, the main folks I want to focus on here in this portion, these, these uh, few verses, 19 and 20, is shame. Say shame. Shame. In verse 20, Paul connects that same deliverance. He says, listen, I'm going to be delivered because you guys are going to pray and there is a supply of the Holy Spirit. I know I'm going to be set free. But in verse 20, he says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. There's something about shame that's important here. Paul is definitely in a bad place. He's standing on one of the most important Christian principles of all of them. That principle is that this isn't the end of the story. If there's a Christian principle that you need to understand and you need to live by and you need to receive is that wherever you find yourself today, this isn't the end of the story. Paul says, I know that the story can't end like this. I just know it, this isn't the end of the story. Not because there's more that he wanted to do and not because he felt like he deserved better. Paul says the story can't end like this because Lord, You promised me that in you and because of you, I would never have to be ashamed again. So this story can't end here because it feels pretty shameful right now. I know who you are, Lord. You promised me this can't be the end. Why do I say you'd never have to be shamed again? You know, Paul called himself the chief among sinners. And then you know what he said about me and you? He said we were were pretty bad too. We might not have been the chief, but we were neck and neck. <laughs> Romans chapter 6, this is, this is what Paul says about all of us. Say, me too. Me too. All right, it's talking to you. <laughs> Romans 6.20 says, Paul says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness. And the end, the end of the story, is everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says, you lived a whole life and it was shameful. 
I remember when I got saved, I was unbelievably ashamed of the way that I was living. Like, I couldn't believe that it was as bad as it really was. You know how it is when you're in the world and you're in sin, you're like, this is bad, but I don't care. <laughs> but then when you meet God, you're like, oh God, it was that bad? And the worst part about it is the exposure. It's one thing to realize you were a sinner and that it was really bad, but it's just you. You're the only one that knows. No big deal. But I remember coming into church and it felt like there was a spotlight on me saying, look at his sin. Look how dirty he is. Look at what a liar he is. Look at how evil he is. Just the exposure was so shameful that every single Sunday I wanted to run out of church. Usually by about point two or three. I'm looking at Mary like, what did you tell him about me? I'm so ashamed. I'm so exposed right now. But it's the same thing that happened to Adam and Eve, right? When they recognized that they were sinners, they were exposed and they tried to hide and cover themselves. See, God wants us to see our sins so that we can actually understand how good forgiveness and salvation are. You have to see it, otherwise you don't understand the cross. If you don't see your sin, you won't repent. If you don't see how dark and ugly it is, how can you really appreciate the light? How can you really understand and receive forgiveness if you don't understand what you're being forgiven for? So God wants you to see it. He wants me to see it. But so we can accept salvation and glorify him for it. The devil wants you to see your sin so that you can be ashamed and that you can hide and that you can run. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 4. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame, for you will forget the shame of your youth. Psalm 25, 1 says, O Lord, lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. And indeed, let no one who awaits, who waits on you be ashamed. Romans 9.33 says, As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. This is why Paul is saying, I'm going to get set free. I'm going to be delivered. Your prayers are going to be a part of that. The Holy Spirit's going to be a part of that. And I know it's going to happen because the Lord will not let me live in shame. I will not be ashamed. One of the most important things that shift between my old life and your old life and our new life is we lived in a way for ourselves that was shameful. But when you live for Jesus, you don't have to be ashamed. Over a, whatever the amount of time it takes, your shame will be removed. The truth will come to light and it'll be an honorable truth rather than a shameful truth. In the uh, ancient world, a lot of things when you're reading your scriptures are about shame versus honor. So a God that comes and promises you that, that you'll never have to be ashamed again is unbelievably valuable. There's no amount of money that could buy that. And people wanted honor more than they wanted riches. Things have shifted, I think, in our day and age, right? People want riches more than they want to be honorable. Most people have given the choice. They'll, they say, I don't care what it takes. I don't care who I have to hurt. And I don't even care how the world sees me. If I could be rich, it's worth it to me. Crazy, huh? If you've been struggling with shame, I want to encourage you to allow God to close the chapter, that chapter of your book, 
and start the next chapter, one that leads to deliverance and hope and honor. Right? That's how shame works. It's about perspective. If you look at shame as a chapter of your life or is shame the book of your life? If you look at it as a, as a chapter, it can be closed and you can move on. If you look at it as the book, it's going to be a lot of hiding and running and covering for you. So I want to pray for you that, uh, that God would allow you and me to progress beyond that. Close that chapter of shame. That's not what God intends for us. Let's finish up. We have one more point. Verse 20. It says, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing shall I be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what shall I choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. So number four is to be or not to be, but we're going to change it to to be or not to be here, but to still be. And I'll explain what that means. <laughs> We've all heard that, that, that saying or that quote, to be or not to be, that is the question. And that's almost the question Paul is asking. But the question Paul is asking is to be or not to be here. I'm still going to be. I'm either going to be up with the Lord or I'm going to be here with you. And that's the question that he's wrestling with and that he has to answer. Does he want to die and go on to live with Jesus? Or does he want to stay here living and bear more fruit, even though it always ends him up in prison? He says, I'm hard pressed between the two. But being with Christ is clearly better. He doesn't pull any punches. He says, for me, being with Christ is much better than staying here with all of you guys. And if you're a Christian, I'm sure you felt that way at some point in your life. Lord, please just take me. I can't take these people no more. <laughs> Lord, right now is probably the best time for the second coming. Come back and get us, Lord. <laughs> but how many people will perish if that happens? Right. Look at how Paul, look at what he says in verse 24. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy of faith. Paul makes his decision based on what's better for others. That's rough. You know what's called when you consider your own situation and then you consider the situation of others and then you make your decision based on what's best for everyone? You know what that's called? Community. Let me say that again. Paul, he says, what's best for me? Being with Christ or being here with you, what's best for me is definitely being with Christ. Then he says, but what's best for all of you guys is if I stay and I keep teaching and preaching and loving and sending these letters and doing all the stuff that I'm doing, definitely better for you guys. So what am I going to do? I'm going to consider what's best for me, consider what's best for you, and then make the decision that's actually best for everybody, but ultimately best for you. He says, I am part of a community. I am not an individual. My decisions matter for the community, not just me. We said that our focus here in the fall is community and unity. 
But it's not just to learn a bunch of things, it's about applying these things into our life. You know when things get really crazy? When the other members of the community, your brothers and your sisters, begin to make their decisions the same way. See, it's one thing for Paul to say, look, what's best for me is this, what's best for you is that, I'm going to do that, and you guys are going to be blessed, and my life is going to suck. But that's not what should actually happen. What should happen is he, he evaluates what's best for him, what's best for others, he does what's best for others, and then those others evaluate what's best for them and what's best for others, and they do what's best for others. Which means everybody ends up getting blessed when you're part of a community and not looking at your life as an individual. Or not making your community so small that it only includes your spouse and your kids. That's not a community, that's a family. Us four and no more. God, thank you for this community of everybody with my last name. Thank you for this community, Lord. Would you bless us? First. That's not how it works, church. If community operates the way that it, we see it biblically and the way that I believe God wants it to operate, all of us end up receiving more than we've surrendered. You can't just surrender hoping to receive. You know how people do that? Like, like hey, I gave. What am I going to get? Hey, I picked you up for church. What are you going to do for me? You can't do it with that spirit, right? You can't do it with that spirit. But the principle should remain. Listen, I have fully surrendered to the blessings of the community, and the community will make sure that I am taken care of. This is the way Jesus said it. He said, I came to give you life, and life more abundantly. But then the second part, Jesus says, the way to receive that life is through death. Like, we would love if he didn't say that other part, right? You came to give me life and life more abundantly? Yes, I want it. How do I get it? You got to die and sacrifice everything. You die and sacrifice the, the, what you had, what you thought was life, but what you receive is life more abundantly, and you realize what I sacrificed cannot compare to what I've received. It's the same thing in the community. This is Matthew 16, 24, and we're going to close. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He says, listen, you're going to have to suffer for this thing. You've got to deny yourself and actually take up a cross. He says, if you desire to hold on to your life and you won't surrender it for the good of others, for my sake and for the sake of the body of believers, you're eventually going to lose what you thought was real life. But if you lay that down, if you, if you suffer and you sacrifice and you surrender, you'll actually find life, life more abundantly, the fullness of life. Our true and best lives are wrapped up in the lives of others. If you're taking notes, write that one down. If you're not, ask God to write it on your heart. <laughs> Our true and best lives are wrapped up in the lives of others. If you want to have real life, if you want to live your best life, it's wrapped up in the lives of others, so you have to connect with others. You have to unwrap that. You have to um, uh, allow your life to be meshed together with the lives of others. That's how we actually find life as Christians. 
It's not isolated and it's not about you and it's not about me. We have to engage one another. God created us for community. And if we're not in community, we can't live the life that he created us to have. He's a triune God. He has always existed in community. There was never a time where God was not in community. And he wants us to be in community, in life with others. Why don't we pray? Come on up, Isaiah. So this morning, we've gone through these verses of, of Philippians, and we've looked at suffering and how that's connected to salvation. We've looked at God moving inside or in spite of us, and we can see how the church has always existed and how it always will exist. <clears throat> There's going to be some good folks and some bad folks, especially within leadership. But God's going to move inside or in spite. The same thing in our lives and in our families. God's going to move inside or in spite. We've looked at shame and how the enemy would have us to stay there, but how God would use that to propel us into a deeper relationship with him, to be forgiven, to close the chapter on shame in many of our lives and walk in healing, forgiveness, deliverance. And then we looked at the community, this idea of it's not ultimately about you, it's not ultimately about me, but it's about we, how we make our decisions, what type of decisions glorify God, what level of sacrifice we have to be willing to make but then also how that returns to us in, in amazing ways. Why do we stand? <clears throat> let's bow our heads, let's close our eyes, and for just a minute, just a few seconds actually, I'm gonna ask you just to think about the Lord. Close your eyes, bow your head, and just think about Jesus. How he says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross and follow me. Surrender all. Lay down your life. You can't keep it. You've got to give it up. But if you do, you'll take up a new life. He says you'll take up my life, an eternal life, an unbreakable and unshakable life but it'll cost you everything. So as we're thinking about the Lord this morning, heads are bowed, eyes are closed. This is about you, it's not about shame. The enemy would wanna shame you this morning, ostracize you this morning, have you to stand out, but that's not the heart of God. What God wants to do is just show you that you're a sinner so that you can embrace salvation show you that you have done many, many things that are unforgivable unless God forgives you. And then he wants you to see Jesus. Arms open on the cross saying, I forgive you, I love you, I came for you. I wanna deal with all your shame, I wanna deal with all your pain. And all you've gotta do is say yes this morning. He doesn't make it more difficult than that. 
see the truth and say yes. His word promises that he'll send his Holy Spirit. He's a triune God. He's in community. He'll send his Holy Spirit to live in you. You won't have to trust me. You don't have to trust anybody else. God himself will come and live inside of you and you will know that you have been changed, that something is different, that it is true, that it is real. But the key to opening that door is just to say yes. So heads are bowed, eyes are closed. If you want to accept Jesus, if you want to deal with your sin, deal with your shame, would you just raise your hand so I can see you? We want to pray with you. Amen. We see you, brother, and we see you, sister. Is there anybody else this morning? Before we move on, just want to raise your hand and say, man, I want to be saved. I want Jesus. I want to be forgiven. I want a new life. Thank you, Lord. We thank you, brother. We thank you for you. Why don't we give the Lord a hand for that? Lord, we thank you for our brother. We thank you for our sister. Lord, many of us, this idea of community, when we thought we were coming for ourselves today, when we thought we had a need, Lord, when we thought that maybe it was about our suffering, Lord, that maybe just by our presence, maybe just from our worship, maybe just from this last few minutes of praying, somebody would come out of death and into life, out of darkness and into the light, Lord God. We're so in awe of you. Help us to suffer well, Lord God. Help us to look at the community as more important than us as an individual, Lord. There's life and there's hope in that. For the rest of us this morning, I'm going to open the altars. We're going to hand out communion, but you can come to the altar if there's anything you need prayer for. If you want to stand in the gap for somebody that's also suffering or going through something, your prayers matter. Just like Paul said, I know I'm going to be delivered because of your prayers and the supply of the Spirit. So if there's anything, we'll open the altars for you. We'll have our mask and we'll pray with you in faith. But specifically for these three, or excuse me, these four areas, any one of these, please respond if it's you. God is a God of response. So number one is suffering. If you find yourself not suffering well, you stay really low and you stay where you can reach out and touch your suffering, but you really want God to help you go higher up, that you can be in the arms of Christ while you're suffering and looking down on your suffering, I'm telling you it will change your life. If that's you, when we open the altars, would you come? Would you let us know? We want to pray for you. You're going to suffer. It's part of life. But God can help us to suffer well. Number two, if you feel like there is anything inside of you that is causing God to maybe move in spite of you instead of inside of you, we want to pray for that to change. We're human. We have pride. We have goals. We have all kinds of things going on inside of us. I think it's healthy to consistently say, Lord, I want to know you. I don't want to get to the end of this race and have you say, flee from me. I never knew you. So we just want to pray. We want to pray that whatever those things might be, that they're broken now, that there's a shift in your life, shift in my life, that we would be confident that God is moving in us and not in spite of us. Third is shame. Man, I just want to see God. I can even see it now just shaking that off of you and wiping that off of you. God has a process. Adam and Eve tried to cover their shame with leaves. God comes in and he says, nope, get rid of those leaves, but I'm still going to cover you. He killed the first animal and he covered them. He said, listen, your covering of your shame is going to cost blood. Jesus says this morning, God says this morning, the blood of my sin will take care of all, or the blood of my son will take care of all of your shame. 
He doesn't want you to stay in shame. He wants to cover you, but in the way that only he can. So we want to pray for you. And then the last one is community. It's a hard one because we all have needs and we all have issues and we all have things we want to do for ourselves and things we want to do for our families. But man, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the community of believers, it's worth it. So if you need prayer in the area of community, just coming a little bit off of the focus of yourself and a little bit more into the focus of the body, don't be ashamed. We all need prayer in that area. So the altars are open. We're going to worship. You're free. You're released. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your people. We thank you for worship. We thank you first and foremost for another salvation to show that you are still alive and moving this morning, God. We ask that you would continue to help us continue to strengthen us, Lord. Remind us that this is not the end of the story. If we're in the best season of our lives or the worst season of our lives, it's not the end of the story. There's more you're going to do. There's more that you're going to accomplish. There's more that we are going to see. And we're just so excited that we get to do that with you and with each other, Lord. Give us community this fall. Give us unity this fall, Lord God, and give us continuity that we would move together for our good, but for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 We're going to worship. Altars are open. Communion will go around. God bless you. Thank you, Lord.